Section 33 of The Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Liberty, Part 6. In order to understand how so great a moral revolution has been wrought, you must return for a moment to the Middle Ages. We left the burgher class in alliance with the kings, possessing liberal charters, making their own laws, levying their own taxes, commanding their own troops. Their sons were not always merchants like themselves. They invaded the intellectual dominions of the priests. They became lawyers, artists, and physicians. Then another change took place. Standing armies were invented, and the middle class were re-enslaved. Their municipal rights were taken from them. Troops were stationed in their towns. The nobles collected round the king, who could now reward their loyalty with lucrative and honourable posts, the command of a regiment, or the administration of a province. Heavy taxes were imposed on the burghers and the peasants, and these supported the nobles and clergy who were exempt. Aristocracy and monarchy became fast friends, and the crown was protected by the thunders of the church. The rebellion of the German monk established an idol of ink and paper, instead of an idol of painted wood or stone. The Protestant believed that it was his duty to study the Bible for himself, and so education was spread throughout the countries of the reformed religion. A desire for knowledge became general, and the academies of the Jesuits were founded in self-defence. The enlargement of the reading class gave the book that power which the pulpit once enjoyed, and in the hands of Voltaire the book began to preach. The fallacies of the Syrian religion were exposed, and with that religion fell the doctrine of passive obedience and divine right, the doctrine that unbelievers are the enemies of God, the doctrine that men who adopt a particular profession are invested with magical powers which stream into them from other men's finger ends, the doctrine that a barbarous legal code was issued viva voce by the creator of the world. Such notions as these are still held by thousands in private life, but they no longer enter into the policy of states or dictate statutes of the realm. Voltaire destroyed the authority of the church, and Rousseau prepared the way for the destruction of the crown. He believed in a dreamland of the past which had never existed. He appealed to imaginary laws of nature. Yet these errors were beneficial in their day. He taught men to yearn for an ideal state, which they, with their own efforts, might attain. He inspired them with a sentiment of liberty, and with a reverence for the law of right. Virtuous principles, abstract ideas, the future deities of men, were now for the first time lifted up to be adored. A thousand hearts palpitated with excitement. A thousand pens were drawn. The people, that slumbered in sorrow and captivity, heard a voice bidding them arise. They strained, they struggled, and they burst their bonds. Jacques Bonhomme, who had hitherto gone on all fours, discovered, to his surprise, that he also was a biped. The world became more light. The horizon widened. A new epoch opened for the human race. The anti-slavery movement, which we shall now briefly sketch, is merely an episode in that great rebellion against authority which began in the night of the Middle Ages. 
which sometimes assumed the form of religious heresy, sometimes of serf revolt, which gradually established the municipal cities and raised the slave to the position of the tenant, which gained great victories in the Protestant Reformation, the two English revolutions, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, which has destroyed the tyranny of governments in Europe and which will, in time, destroy the tyranny of religious creeds. In the middle of the 18th century, Negro slavery, although it had frequently been denounced in books, had not attracted the attention of the English people. To them, it was something in the abstract, something which was done beyond the seas. But there arose an agitation which brought up its distant horrors in vivid pictures before the mind, and produced an outcry of anger and disgust. It had been the custom of the Virginian or West Indian planter, when he left his tobacco or sugar estate for a holiday in England, to wear very broad hats and very wide trousers, and to be accompanied by those slaves who used to bring him his coffee in the early morning, to brush away the blue-tailed fly from his siesta, and to mix him rum and water when required. The existence of such attendants was somewhat anomalous in this island, and friends would often observe, with a knowing air, it was lucky for him that Sambo was not up to English law. That law, indeed, was undefined. Slavery had existed in England, and had died out of itself. In what manner and at what time, no one could precisely say. It was, however, a popular impression that no man could be kept as a slave if he were once baptised. The planters enjoyed the same kind of reputation which the nabobs afterwards obtained. A yellow skin and a bad heart were at one time always associated with each other. The negroes were often encouraged to abscond and to offer themselves before the font. They obtained as sponsors respectable, well-to-do men who declared that they would stand by their godsons if it came to a case at law. The planters were in much distress and in order to know the worst went to Messrs. York and Talbot, the Attorney and Solicitor General for the time being, and requested an opinion. The opinion of York and Talbot was this, that slaves breathing English air did not become free, that slaves, on being baptised, did not become free, and that their masters could force them back to the plantations when they pleased. The planters, finding that the law was on their side, at once acted on their opinion. Advertisements appeared in the newspapers offering rewards for runaway slaves. Negroes might be seen being dragged along the streets in open day. They were bought and sold at the Poultry Compter, an old city jail. Free men of colour were no longer safe. Kidnapping became a regular pursuit. There was a young man named Granville Sharp, whose benevolent heart was touched to the quick by the abominable scenes which he had witnessed more than once. He could not believe that such was really English law. He examined the question for himself, and, after long search, discovered precedents which overthrew the opinion of the two great lawyers. He published a pamphlet in which he stated his case, and, not content with writing, he also acted in the cause, aiding and abetting Negroes to escape. On one occasion, a Virginian had disposed of an unruly slave to a skipper bound for the West Indies. The vessel was lying in the river. The unfortunate negro was chained to the mast. When Granville Sharp climbed over the side with a writ of habeas corpus in his hand, James Somerset's body was given up 
and with its panting, shuddering, hopeful, fearful soul inside, was produced before a court of justice that Lord Mansfield might decide to whom it belonged. The case was argued at three sittings, and excited much interest throughout the land. It ended in the liberation of the slave. Several hundred negroes were at once bowed out by their masters into the street, and wandered about, sleeping in glass-houses, seated on the doorsteps of their former homes, weeping and cursing Granville Sharp. It was resolved to do something for them, and a grant of land was obtained from the native chiefs at the mouth of the Sierra Leone River. A company was formed. Four hundred destitute negroes were sent out, and, as if there were no women in Africa, fifty unfortunates were sent out with them. The society of these ladies was not conducive to the moral or physical well-being of the emigrants, eighty-four of whom died before they sighted land, and eighty-six in the first four months after landing. The philanthropists thus produced a middle passage at which a slave trader would have been aghast. In a short time the white women were dead, and the Granvilles, as they are traditionally called upon the coast, adopted savage life. But the settlement was repeopled from another source. In the American Revolutionary War, large numbers of Negroes had flocked to the royal standard, attracted by the proclamations of the British generals. These runaway slaves were sent to Nova Scotia, where they soon began to complain. The climate was not to their taste, and they had not received the lands which had been promised them. They were then shipped off to Sierra Leone. They landed, singing hymns, and pitched their tents on the site of the present town. The settlement was afterwards recruited with Negroes in thousands out of slave ships. But the American element may yet be detected in the architecture of the native houses and in the speech of the inhabitants. In the meantime, the slave trade was being actively discussed. Among those who felt most deeply on the question was Dr. Peckard of St. John's College, Cambridge, who, being in 1785 Vice-Chancellor, gave as a subject for the Latin essay, Anne licet in vitos in servitutem dare. Is it right to make men slaves against their will? Among the candidates was a certain Bachelor of Arts, Mr. Thomas Clarkson, who had gained the prize for the best Latin essay the year before, and was desirous of keeping up his reputation. He therefore took unusual pains to collect materials respecting the African slave trade, to which he knew Dr. Peckard's question referred. He borrowed the papers of a deceased friend who had been in the trade, and conversed with officers who had been stationed in the West Indies. He read Benazet's historical account of Guinea, and was thence guided to the original authorities, which are contained in the large folios of Haklut and Purkas. These old voyages, written by men who were themselves slavers, contain admirable descriptions of native customs, and also detailed accounts of the way in which the man-trade was carried on. Clarkson possessed a vivid imagination and a tender heart. These narratives filled him with horror and alarm. The pleasure of research was swallowed up in the pain that was excited by the facts before him. It was one gloomy subject from morning to night. In the daytime he was uneasy. At night he had little rest. Sometimes he never closed his eyes from grief. It became not so much a trial for academical reputation as for the production of a work which might be useful to injured Africa. 
he always slept with a candle in the room that he might get up and put down thoughts which suddenly occurred to him. At last he finished his painful task and obtained the prize. He went to Cambridge and read his essay in the Senate House. On his journey back to London, the subject continually engrossed his thoughts. I became, he said, very seriously affected upon the road. I stopped my horse occasionally, and dismounted and walked. I frequently tried to persuade myself, in these intervals, that the contents of my essay could not be true. Coming in sight of the Wade's Mill in Hertfordshire, I sat down disconsolate on the turf by the roadside, and held my horse. Here a thought came into my mind, that if the contents of the essay were true, it was time that some person should see these calamities to their end. On arriving in London, he heard, for the first time, of the labours of Granville Sharp and others. He determined to give up his intention of entering the church, and to devote himself entirely to the destruction of the slave trade. At this time, a committee was formed for the purpose of preparing the public mind for abolition. Granville Sharp, to whom more than any other individual the abolition of the slave trade is due, became the president, and Clarkson was deputed to collect evidence. He called on the leading men of the day, and endeavoured to engage his sympathies in the cause. His modest, subdued demeanour, the sad, almost tearful expression of his face, which the painter of his portrait has fortunately seized, the earnestness and passion with which he depicted the atrocities of the slave-hunt in Africa, and the miseries of the slave-hold at sea, secured him attention and respect from all. And among those with whom he spoke was one whose fame is the purest and the best that parliamentary history records. William Wilberforce was the son of a rich merchant at Hull, and inherited a large fortune. He went to Cambridge, and was afterwards elected member for his native city, an honour which cost him eight thousand pounds. He became a member of the fashionable clubs, and chiefly frequented Brooks, where he became a votary of Pharaoh, till his winnings cured him of his taste for play. He soon obtained a reputation in the house and the salon. He had an easy flow of language, and a voice which was melody itself. He was a clever mimic and an accomplished musician. He possessed the rare arts of polished raillery and courteous repartee. Madame de Stael declared that he was the wittiest man in England. But presently he withdrew from her society and that of her friends, because it was brilliant and agreeable. He also took his name off all his clubs. He was travelling on the continent with Pitt, who was his bosom friend, when a change came over him. In the days of his childhood he had been sent to reside with an aunt who was a great admirer of Whitfield's preaching, and kept up a friendly connection with the early Methodists. He was soon infected with her ideas, and there was remarked in him a rare and pleasing character of piety in his twelfth year. This excited much consternation among the other members of his family. His mother at once came up to London and fetched him home. If Billy turns Methodist, said his grandfather, he shall not have a sixpence of mine. We are informed that theatrical diversions, card parties, and sumptuous suppers at the fashionable hour of six in the evening obliterated these impressions for a time. They were not, however, dead, for the perusal of Doddridge's Rise and Progress was sufficient to revive them. 
This amiable and excellent young man became the prey of a morbid superstition. Often, in the midst of enjoyment, his conscience told him he was not, in the true sense of the word, a Christian. I laughed, I sang, I was apparently gay and happy, but the thought would steal across me. What madness is all this? To continue easy in a state in which a sudden call out of the world would consign me to everlasting misery, and that when eternal happiness is within my grasp. The sinful worldling accordingly reformed. He declined Sunday visits. He got up earlier in the morning. He wrestled continually in prayer. He began to keep a commonplace book, serious and profane, and a Christian duty paper. He opened himself completely to Pitt, and said he believed the spirit was in him. Mr. Pitt was apparently of a different opinion, for he tried to reason him out of his convictions. The fact is, says Mr. Wilberforce, he was so absorbed in politics that he had never given himself time for due reflection in religion. But, amongst other things, he declared to me that Bishop Butler's work raised in his mind more doubts than it had answered. Now, if that was the character of Pitt's intellect, we must venture to think that the more he reflected on religion, the less he would have believed in it. Superstition intensifies a man. It makes him more of what he was before. An evil-natured person, who takes fright at hellfire, becomes the most malevolent of human beings. Nothing can more clearly prove the natural beauty of Wilberforce's character than the fact that he preserved it unimpaired in spite of his Methodistic principles. It would be unjust to deny that after he became a Methodist, he became a wiser and a better man. His intellect was strengthened, his affections were sweetened, by a faith the usual tendency of which is to harden the heart and to soften the head. He endeavoured to control a human, and therefore sometimes irritable, temper. He laid down for himself the rule to manifest rather humility in himself than dissatisfaction at others. And so well did he succeed that a female friend observed, If this is madness, I hope that he will bite us all. Yet there was a flaw in Wilberforce's brain, or he could never have supposed that a man might be sent to hell for playing the piano. He soon showed that in another age he might have been an excellent inquisitor. And inquisitors there were who were not less pure-hearted, not less benevolent in private life, than Wilberforce himself. He desired to do something in public for the glory of God, and he believed it was his mission to reform the manners of the age. When a man of fashion was always a gambler, when all the clubs in St. James's Street were hells, when speeches were often incoherent in the house after dinner, when comic songs were composed against Mr. Pitt, not because he had a mistress, but because he had none, when ladies called adultery a little affair, when the Prince of Wales was a young man about town, grazing on the middle classes, it cannot be questioned that, from the royal family downwards, there was room for improvement. The reader will perhaps feel curious to learn in what manner Mr. Wilberforce commenced his laudable but difficult crusade. He obtained a royal proclamation for the discouragement of vice and immorality, and letters from the Secretaries of State to the Lord's Lieutenant expressing His Majesty's pleasure that they recommend it to the Justices throughout their several counties to be active in the execution of the laws against immoralities. He also started a society to assist in the enforcement of the proclamation, 
as a kind of amateur detective corps, to hunt up indecent and blasphemous publications. And that was what he called reforming the manners of the age. Happily, the slave trade question began to be discussed, and Mr. Wilberforce obtained a cause which was worthy of his noble nature. The miseries of Africa had long attracted his attention. Even in his boyhood he had written on the subject for the daily journals. Lady Middleton, who had heard from an eyewitness of the horrors of slavery, had begged him to bring it before Parliament. Mr. Pitt had also advised him to take up the question, and he had agreed to do so whenever an opportunity should occur. This happened before his acquaintance with Clarkson, to whom he said at their first interview that abolition was a question near his heart. A short time after, there was a dinner at Mr. Bennett Langton's, at which Sir Joshua Reynolds, Boswell, Wyndham, and himself were present. The conversation turned upon the African slave trade, and Clarkson exhibited some specimens of cotton cloth manufactured by the natives in their own looms, the plant being grown in their own fields. All the guests expressed themselves on the side of abolition, and Mr. Wilberforce was asked if he would bring it forward in the house. He said that he would have no objection to do so when he was better prepared for it, providing no more proper person could be found. The committee now went to work in earnest, and held weekly meetings at Mr. Wilberforce's house. Clarkson was sent to Bristol and Liverpool, where he collected much information, though not without difficulty, and even, as he thought, danger of his life. A commission was appointed by the Lords of the Privy Council to collect evidence. It was stated by the Liverpool and Planter Party that not only the colonial prosperity, but the commercial existence of the nation was at stake, that the Guinea trade was a nursery for British seamen, that the slaves offered for sale were criminals and captives who would be eaten if they were not bought, that the middle passage was the happiest period of a negro's life, that the sleeping apartments on board were perfumed with frankincense, and that the slaves were encouraged to disport themselves on deck with the music and dances of their native land. On the other hand, the committee proved, from the muster-rolls which Clarkson had examined, that the guinea trade was not the nursery of British seamen, but its grave, and they published a picture of an African slaver copied from a vessel which was lying in the Mersey, and certain measurements were made, which, being put into feet and inches, justified the statement of a member in the house that never was so much human suffering condensed into so small a space. Lord Chancellor Thurlow and two other members of the Cabinet were opposed to abolition, and therefore Mr Pitt could not make it a government measure. And so, although it was called the battle between the giants and the pygmies, although Pitt, Fox, Burke, Sheridan, Wyndham and Wilberforce, the greatest orators and statesmen of the day, were on one side, and the two members for Liverpool on the other, the brute votes went with the pygmies, and the bill was lost. But now the nation was beginning to be moved. The committee distributed books and hired columns in the newspapers. They sealed their letters with the negro in chains kneeling, and the motto, Am I not a man and a brother? Wedgwood made cameos with the same design. Ladies wore them in their bracelets or their hairpins. Gentlemen had them inlaid in gold on the lids of their snuff-boxes. Cowper sent to the committee the well-known poem, Fleecy Locks and Black Complexion. The committee printed it on the finest hot-pressed paper, folded it up in a small and neat form, gave it the appropriate title, 
of a subject for conversation at the tea-table, and cast it forth by thousands upon the land. It was set to music and sung as a street ballad. People crowded at shop windows to see the picture of the ship in which the poor negroes were packed like herrings in a cask. A murmur arose and grew louder and louder. Three hundred thousand persons gave up drinking sugar in their tea. Indignation meetings were held, and petitions were sent into Parliament by the ton. Everything seemed to show that the nation had begun to loathe the trade in flesh and blood, and would not be appeased till it was done away. And then came the events which made the sweet words liberty, humanity, equality sound harsh and ungrateful to the ear, which caused those who spoke much of philanthropy and eternal justice to be avoided by their friends, and perhaps supervised by the police, which rendered Negroes and emancipation a subject to be discussed only with sneers and shakings of the head. When the slave trade question had first come up, Mr. Pitt proposed to the French government that the two nations should unite in the cause of abolition. Now in France, the peasantry themselves were slaves, and the Negro trade had been bitterly attacked in books which had been burned by the public executioner and the authors of which had been excommunicated by the Pope. Mr. Pitt's proposal was at once declined by the coterie of the Earl de Boeuf. In the meantime, it was discovered that the French nation was heavily in debt. There was a loss of nearly five million sterling every year, a fact by no means surprising, for the nobles and clergy paid no taxes. Each branch of trade was an indolent monopoly, and poor Jacques Bonhomme bore the weight of the court and army on his back. Chancellors of the Exchequer, one after the other, were appointed, and attempted in vain to grapple with the difficulty. As a last resource, the House of Commons was revived, that the debt of bankrupt despotism might be accepted by the nation. A parliament was opened at Versailles. Lawyers and merchants, dressed in black, walked in the same procession, and sat beneath the same roof with the haughty nobles, rustling with feathers, shining with gold, and wearing swords upon their thighs. But the commoners soon perceived that they had only been summoned to vote away the money of the nation. They were not to interfere with the laws. Their debates becoming offensive to the king, the hall in which they met was closed against them. They then gathered in a tennis court, called themselves the National Assembly, and took an oath that they would not dissolve until they had regenerated France. Troops were marched into Versailles, a coup d'etat was evidently in the wind. And then the Parisians arose. The army refused to fight against them. The Bastille was destroyed. The National Assembly took the place of the Earl de Boeuf. Democracy became the mayor of the palace. A constitution was drawn up and accepted by the king. The nobility were deprived of their feudal rights. Church property was resumed by the nation. Taxes were imposed on the rich as well as on the poor. The peasantry went out shooting every Sunday. The country gentlemen fled from their chateau to foreign courts, where wars began to brew. End of section 33